Welcome to the Novus Podcast. On this series, we will talk with students, faculty, and experts on topics related to technology, communications, and cultural studies. This podcast is presented to you in partnership with Tech and Society, which is a university-wide collaboration among Georgetown's nine schools with a shared goal to shape technology's promise for a better world. The episode captures the highlights from the discussion of the book, Voices in the Code, with the author David Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a faculty member at Apple University and a visiting scholar at the Social Science Matrix at the University of California, Berkeley. Automated decision-making systems, or algorithms, are playing an increasingly significant role in public administration and civil rights space. In the book, Robinson investigates and contextualizes the story of the kidney allocation system, which, as a result of cross-disciplinary collaboration among surgeons, clinicians, data scientists, public officials, advocates, and patients, over the course of 10 years, evolved into a relatively inclusive and accountable decision-making technology. Through this story, the author discusses the most fundamental issues related to the design and management of public interest algorithms. The event is moderated by Laura Denardis, professor of technology, ethics, and society at Georgetown University, and the renowned scholar on internet governance and cybersecurity. Let us hear from the author. Hello, everybody. It's a real thrill to be back here at Georgetown in particular, and in fact, on this campus, because that's where this book was born. I, in 2017, was teaching in the Law Center as an adjunct while I was working at Upturn uh, and taught a class called Governing Automated Decisions because in our work at Upturn, we really do civil rights and technology together. And so we were working closely with advocates who work on the full gamut of what you might think of as traditional civil rights issues. So criminal law reform, uh, housing, healthcare, education, jobs. And in each of those areas, if you're an advocate these days, or especially, say, you know, five years ago, you probably didn't get there by being a computer nerd. But now, software is coming in and mediating a lot of these decisions. Who can go to which school? Who gets a job? Who gets how much public assistance or what kind of health care, or even in a, in a context that's especially salient around uh, a law school, who's dangerous and belongs in jail even before their trial. And what we had seen in a bunch of these cases, uh, a bunch of these contexts, was that uh, there were really embarrassing things happening with software where it just didn't seem to be going right. The, decision makers, the people who hold authority, were bringing in software that they themselves didn't understand. They didn't seem to be very good at kicking the tires. Uh, there were errors. There were unexplained problems happening. There were uh, incorrect decisions that really impact people's lives in negative ways, like someone's benefits being taken away and no one could explain why, or someone being errantly accused of fraud who, in fact, had not committed fraud because of some computer bug. And so, or in the context of the courtroom, uh, this was something I'd worked on in particular, and we can zoom in on some of these if you, you know, I'll happy to have the conversation go wherever it might. 
But so in this class at Georgetown that I was teaching, we were looking at all these different challenges about governing automated decisions in a way that would be inclusive and democratic and accountable. And, you know, it's pretty much of a mess in a lot of these cases. And that's, that's sort of, there's a nascent literature of concern about this. Um, and so at the end of this class, students were writing term papers. A couple of students came to me and said, Professor, we've, we've, we've studied all of these different systems where things are going wrong. We've talked about theories about how to build software in a more accountable way. So public participation, transparency of how the system works, forecasting, like, okay, how would this turn out if we did try it? Like, before we try it, let's try and understand what would be likely to happen. Or auditing, right? After some important piece of technology is coming up, making some important decision, checking to make sure that it's actually doing things right. Um, they said there are a lot of theories, but we think we found a real example where things are being done better and where participation, transparency, all these techniques that people are talking about as theories actually have been happening for decades. And we'd like to write a term paper about this, and that's the organ transplant system in the United States. And long and the short of it, they did. I really wanted them to publish on this. They sensibly wanted to go practice law instead. I kind of stayed with this idea, ended up leaving Washington actually to go to Cornell to work on what became this book. So the very short version is that um, this is software that decides when a kidney has been donated and becomes available. Um, who should get it? So I'm not talking about a case where someone decides to donate an organ to a loved one where they have a recipient in mind, right? I'm talking about like on your driver's license, it says this person's an organ donor. You haven't picked out a recipient. In the case of kidneys, there are 100,000 people waiting in the United States. And when the organ becomes available, it's time to act. There's not time for a long debate about where that organ should go. There's a limited window. And so a whole bunch of factors are important in deciding what to do with that organ. One of them is, one group of factors is medical, like who has the right blood type or the right kind of immune system markers that they would be able to use this organ, that they would, they would, it would work for them. Um, there's a set of logistical factors, who's nearby, who's ready, um, whose surgical team is, is ready to go. Um, but there are also some moral factors, like do, what are we trying to do in the way we give out the organs? One approach, so the book looks at a period between about 2004 and 2014 where we remade the national algorithm that gives out the donated kidneys. And what it does, every time an organ becomes available, there's a national database of everyone who's waiting, and there's a what's known as a match run where a prioritized list is produced of all the potential recipients for this organ. And then they work their way down the list, offering it to the medical team of patient one, patient two, and so on, until someone says, yes, I'll take that organ. And one way you could do this, the first way that they tried, that the experts wanted to do, the clinicians and the data scientists first proposed, was something called, this was in the era before li uh, uh, ride sharing, was called LIFT, life years from transplant. The idea was maximize the total amount of extra life that gets lived as a result of these donated organs. Especially for doctors who think, tend to think one year of life saved is as good as any other, and they don't want to play favorites among their patients or among life, life years saved. So they think more is always better, let's have the most. 
But then they had a public debate about this. They have this outside forecasting group, it's actually a third party that analyzes and audits what's going on, that says, hey, uh, to the broader public, so patients, organ donors, social workers, they had a big meeting in Dallas, that's where my book begins. They said, we're gonna do this maximizing total benefit idea, what do you all think of this? And they actually had done a lot of hard work to make it clear to people how this would change the system. And the short answer is, if you want to maximize the benefit, you're giving the organs to the people who are younger, who are, by and large, apart from their need for a kidney, healthier, who are, in general, on average, wealthier and whiter than the rest of the pool of people who need organs. And by the way, that pool over-indexes people of color because social determinants of health, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, even stress are contributors to kidney failure. So you, you end up in a situation where if you want to maximize total benefit, you basically punish people for having lacked access to care in the first place earlier on in their lives because they're now not the people who can be the most efficient converters of kidneys into life years saved. Anyway, that's what the experts would have done, but the public got a chance to speak up about how this algorithm was going to be designed, about what its moral logic was going to be. And they said no. They said, this is unfair. This is not acceptable. And the whole thing got sent back to the drawing board. And there was a 10-year-long debate where they tried a series of different things and ended up with a messy, muddled compromise in the middle. And the essence of it was that they said, OK, we're not going to reduce by a factor of three the number of kidneys that go to people in their 50s. That wouldn't be fair. It's not acceptable. Fine, fair enough. But what we're going to do is reroute the kidneys so that the youngest and healthiest organs go to the youngest and healthiest recipients without changing very much anyone's overall chance of getting some organ or other. Anyway, bottom line is they, they worked out a moral compromise that nobody thought was perfect, but it was gradually agreed across this community that this was a mutually tolerable idea. And I think one of the, there were, I, th I think there are a bunch of lessons in this experience for our governance of other kinds of algorithms, like those courtroom systems, like those welfare systems, like hiring algorithms. And those, those I think one of the things that we learn from this process, from this story in the book, and of course here, I'm, you know, I'm cramming it all down here into a couple of minutes, but I think, I, I thought of public input like something mechanical you would go out and gather, like the ore to like make your steel or something like that. And in fact, in this case, something much more complicated and interesting and human happened, which is that um, the public debate created opinions, right? People talked to each other, people changed their minds, people were back and forth, almost like I often think of those machines that people use when you're polishing rocks, like to make eventually jewelry, and they have these sharp edges and they tumble and tumble and tumble until something comes out that's more, kind of sparkles a little more and is a little softer, and that, that's kind of what happened here, is that people <coughs> gradually got to something that wasn't perfect, but that, but that we could mutually tolerate, and I think that's a huge accomplishment, even to get to something tolerable, especially in today's political climate, I think is a real triumph of a kind, even though there's lots that's still wrong with this system, and I talk about that as well in the book. And, you know, I'll say one other thing about what I think we can learn here, and we, maybe we can talk about 
okay, when do we export this set of governance practices to other domains and so on. But I think one of the things that was very important was there's a lot of work you have to do in order to build a new piece of technology. There's engineering, there's data science, all kinds of stuff has to happen. If you really want an inclusive debate over the moral logic of the system, if you really want to make room at the table for people, and it's complicated, by the way, because if we put another chair up here and we say, pull up a chair, you get to weigh in, now you have a voice in this system. If we say that to someone and they don't weigh in because they're living at the margins of society, they don't have time to come to a seminar, they don't have time to come to an evening meeting or file a comment or something, right? Then in some way we're putting a burden on them. So it's tricky, right? And you have to think about how do you resource people to participate effectively. Um, but when we do have participation, there are things that we need. We need for the consequences of the possibilities to be made clear for people in plain language. So even if the source code for this software that gives out organs had been published or written out in Skyliner across the, uh, you know, across the horizon or something by a, one of those planes that writes in the sky, it, that wouldn't have created conditions for an inclusive dis discussion. What you really needed was that chart that showed, okay, in the baseline condition, here's how much of the organs go to people of different age groups, and in our proposed change, here's what would happen, right? And someone can glance at that and say, hey, wait a second, that doesn't seem right to me. I wanna do something different. And so there's an infrastructure of making it clear how these technologies work of making it clear what the moral stakes are. And by the way, that's a privileged position, right? To be the one who's the analyzer, who's creating this central repository of analyses of how the proposed system will work. And so there are all kinds of incentive questions there about what the institutional setup is to have somebody be, you know, be candid and so on. And I think that's one of the things that was most striking to me about this process was that there were data scientists acting with relatively to what I had seen elsewhere, humility and saying, look, we've got the technical expertise, but the moral judgments belong to a wider community. And I think that's something we want to see in more places. So um, yeah, that's, that's part of why I uh, wrote the book. Maybe I'll leave it there and see where people want to take the conversation. Terrific, and congratulations again on the book, David. It's really wonderful. Um, I was in a bookstore years ago and came across a book called Algorithms for Infants. And I decided to buy it and take it to a class I was teaching called Cyber Flashpoints, you know, to try to demystify algorithms. And I think one of the things you do in the book that's really helpful is you have a clear definition of what an algorithm is, how it connects to software, and how, the, how this connects to the broader ecosystem of sometimes there's machine learning involved, sometimes there isn't, sometimes it's an, or there's artificial intelligence writ large in it. Could you just uh, share for this group your basic definition of what an algorithm is? Yeah, so here's, here's how I think about it. So, Officially, an algorithm is a set of rules for solving a, a problem. So if in elementary school you did long division by hand with pencil and paper, we could, we could call that an algorithm. But in practice, in policymaking circles, people trot out the fancy word typically when they're talking about software, when they're talking about a rule that is implemented in software. And I've been around the block actually this, these blocks here around the hill, long enough to know that 
there's often a kind of flavor of the week framing of, you know, so it was first people, everyone wanted to talk about everything in terms of big data. Then they wanted to call it all AI. You know, yes, are, is there something really distinctive about certain cases of big data where the where it's, it's a different kind of thing because of the magnitude of the compute and storage that's involved? Yes, there is. Is there, in, are there in some cases important unique traits about AI that when we have these deep neural nets, there's a lot that we don't understand about how they're doing what they're doing. There can be distinctive pieces there, but in the main, if you're a policymaker, the thing you care about is what are the consequences of this system in the world? And I don't think we can really have a regulatory regime in which, in order to know which rules apply, you first have to be an engineer who looks under the hood and sees exactly how the gears are fit together, because that's not something most people can know. And the question, which rules apply to this, is something that has to be easy to figure out if we want the rules to be effective. And so, I, you know, and I, I should say too, I mean, before joining Apple, I spent, uh, a very intense month in the White House at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, working with Dr. Alondra Nelson and the uh, Science and Society team there to develop what became the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. And one of the things you'll see there is a scoping that is really about what the software does rather than about how it's made on the inside. Because in my assessment, that's our best and perfect method of really having an inclusive public conversation about how these pieces of software that are shaping our lives should work. You also make a point about how sometimes there's a disconnect between the decisions about the rules and how they actually become encoded. Mm -hmm. And the question of accountability and transparency about not the, not the decisions, uh, even when it is public, like in the case of the transplant, uh, kidney transplants, but encoding, the encoding of it. So my question is, can, you, can we actually see the algorithms, the formulas that underlie that system, or are we just going on faith that they're being encoded correctly? That's a good, really good question, right? And this is, I mean, I'm in many people's debt, yours, Danielle Citron's, right? Talking about how programmers inevitably alter as they encode whatever rules they're told to encode. I think in this case, one has good grounds for optimism because uh, so uh, the decision logic is public. The precise, how, what is, how do you calculate the allocation score? What exactly are the criteria? What exactly are the zones, geographic zones? All of that is, is, is public. You can calculate your own for several of these allocation scores so you can see what it is and confirm that that's what was actually used. Uh, that said, there are other problems in the transplant so in this actual operating system, there have been, you know, there's manual data entry that ideally shouldn't be manual. Um, there are debates about who actually owns the copyright in the source code. The United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the federally designated nonprofit that runs this system, takes the position that it owns copyright in the code and that it would have to be paid some massive uh, amount of money in order to allow any other entity to take over this function. Uh, because uh, they would have to use its copyrighted code. That's, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't have a position on whether that's true, but just to say they're not publishing the source code, but the decision logic is public. But more importantly than that, there's a different organization, the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, that does the forecasting and auditing 
of the system. And they annually publish a very, very detailed report about exactly where the organs are going, uh, who's waiting. engineer some of it. Yeah, yeah, and they have, I mean, they have, they have observational, they have eyes on the actual data mm -hmm. that's in the system. So who's on the list, right? There is a list that, the, you know, so somebody comes up first as the suggested recipient for this organ, they're being pulled off of a list. Uh, they have access to that list. They can look at what's actually happening. Um, so so that's, that's good. I'll also say one other thing about this focus on fairly moving people from this waiting list to actually getting a transplant, which is, you know, algorithms sort of can at times channel our moral attention. So a lot of stuff about do we give it to the young? Do we give it to first come, first serve? You know, how are different populations within the waiting list doing? So, you know, older people, people of color, people with lower income, people from different geography. Lots and lots of analysis, lots of questions, lots of debate about that. But here's a question that didn't, didn't get as much debate. How do people get onto the waiting list in the first place? Right? What are the barriers there? Who, you know, who ought to be on this list and isn't even on the list? Right? And it's, it's easy to, so, so at some level, there's, a, there's a, a trust element. But I think also we have to educate ourselves when there's a context that we care about, about what's happening around the system and not only inside it. Hence your STS, Science and Technology Studies, framing in the book, which I really appreciate. Uh, let me ask one more question, and then I want to open it up. So cue up your questions. And uh, this question has to do with the values and tension around some of the algorithmic governance recommendations that you make. Mm -hmm. And so the, I could ask any number. Let me, let, let's pick on transparency for a minute. Okay. So what is, when is it beneficial to have transparency in algorithms versus when there's a public interest to have more opaqueness. So, like the Grimmelman argument about you know, search engine algorithms and how you can game the system if they're open and you know, a variety of other uh, different kinds of arguments. What, is the, what are the, uh, the considerations, the social, political, and economic considerations around transparency? And uh, is that something that we could, that, that's a three hour discussion, but give us the two minute version. Yeah, okay, I mean, a couple of points on this. One, absolutely, uh, some systems, there's a vulnerability to gaming. That's a feature that systems have. And so one question is, can we design something that uh, there's less incentive or less opportunity to game it? And when possible, that's an advantage. Uh, I think, you know, certainly, there's some cases in which we've got a whole setup that's premised around commercial competition. And so then you would say, well, you know, we have trade secrecy, right? This is a whole body of our law. So, you know, there's some cases in which trade secrecy is an important part of how we've set things up and transparency could be disruptive of that. So you then would ask, well, is it worth disrupting that in one case or another? Um, uh, and the other thing is, I think, you know, transparency can be weaponized. We see this at my, my former Cornell uh, colleague, uh, Karen Levy's done work on, on this, this, this phenomenon where you force disclosure and sort of bog people down in requests and there's kind of, so, so I, I, I do think that um, transparency can be used for good or for ill, for certainly, and I would come back, I think, to this piece that uh, the idea that disclosure 
is really what we really need. If only they would show us the code. I'm not, not attributing this to any particular of our colleagues in the field, but sometimes one can, from a distance, get the impression that the idea is let's just disclose, or even a fetishization of openness sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. And I'll, maybe I'll accuse one person in the field of this, and that's my own former self when I was doing open government data work. I have a book called Opening Standards, so I'm guilty as well. We, you know, there was a real spirit of optimism, I think, about how much of the surrounding social change would happen if only we would unbottle these secrets from inside of these, you know, these opaque containers. And maybe as I've gotten older, maybe as I've done this work, my perspective has shifted to the point where I find myself thinking much more about what is the social sur surrounding metabolism? What's the ecosystem that this thing is going to be part of? And so, you know, do we actually end up having a world in which real people with their real constraints and their real, you know, Oscar Wilde was reputed to have said that socialism will never work because there aren't enough evenings in the week, you know, for all the meetings. And, and I, it, it, it's, it's, so, you know, are we really creating a world in which people in their real lives with their real constraints can really have a voice? That's the question that ultimately we've all always cared about. And, um, the further into this I get, the more I find myself focusing on the sort of periphery of that. Like, do we have the conditions where the disclosure, you know, can turn into the accountability or the or the or the meaningful inclusion that that we're ultimately hoping to get to? This concludes our episode for today. Thank you for joining us, and I hope to hear from you in the comments section.